Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. Dr. Juliet McClendon, PhD, is the Assistant Professor of Psychology at Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. McClendon's research focuses on the contributions of race-related stressors, such as discrimination to racial and ethnic minority veterans' mental health, as well as treatment-seeking, engagement, and satisfaction. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour, Dr. McClendon. Hello. How are you today? Doing okay. Hanging in. (laughs) And you? Um, I would say I'm doing about the same as you, hanging in there. We became aware of your work from a um, thread of yours on Twitter that went viral uh, earlier in June about the history of racism in psychology and psychiatry. And I think that that uh, thread educated a lot of people about things they didn't know about. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you tweeted out and, and, and why you wanted to share that? Well, I think that given what has been going on in, especially in the U.S. over the past several months, I mean, I think a lot of this really started with COVID-19. Everybody was sort of forced to stay home. A lot of people lost their jobs. People lost loved ones. And that was felt disproportionately by Black communities and by communities of color. And so once the video of the murder of George Floyd went viral, I think that people really were in a situation where they had had enough on a lot of different levels. And so we saw this sort of this uprising occur. And so what that led to that I noticed was a much more interest in understanding how racism affects all different areas of life from health to education, to employment, to um, all of those different aspects of life. And so I sort of saw that as an opportunity to sort of come into this little wedge that we have here and um, start to share some of the knowledge that I've accumulated over the course of my career and my life to help people start to understand how things like systemic racism impact mental health and impact the fields of psychology and psychiatry. I was on Twitter about five or six years ago. I was in um, Ferguson and St. Louis during those uprisings in 2014 and um, became really involved in, um, in protesting and organizing there. And I had joined Twitter then, and this was before I learned how to like ignore trolls and like not try and get into debates with racists and stuff like that. So I really burned myself out on Twitter. So I left Twitter for like five years. So I finally got back on and I was like, all right, I'm gonna make this a professional Twitter. And I actually started out by writing a thread about racial trauma. Um, and what it is, how it's different from PTSD, et cetera. And then this was, I think, the second thread I wrote. And the reason why I wanted to write it was, one, I had written about this when I was a graduate student. I had written about the racist history of psychology and psychiatry. And I think it just shows how the origins, I mean, specifically here of psychology and psychiatry, but this can really be said probably of most disciplines, Um, most academic disciplines and a lot of other things, um, you know, really started, you know, they were part of the fabric of America. And at the time that psychiatry and psychology started, particularly psychiatry, which was around like the late 18th, well, probably a little bit earlier than that, but around the 18th century, because we had slavery and we had sort of these racist policies in place, a lot of these disciplines were used 
um, to sort of justify things like slavery and to justify the way that Black people and enslaved people were treated at the time. Um, and I just wanted to sort of sort of show that these disciplines aren't above the sort of racist attitudes and policies that you know define America in a lot of ways or define the United States in a lot of ways. We, as a discipline, are not immune from racism. We're not immune from very overt racism. And I think it's important for people to understand that racism is really a fabric of the founding of our disciplines. And what that means is that we still have to work very actively to make our disciplines anti-racist. And the only way we can do that is to recognize its foundations, its racist foundations. We can't really do much to change it until we really start at the beginning and understand our history. And so I think that that was a lot of what inspired me to write that thread. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, obviously it's something that really spoke to a lot of people that a lot of people even who have degrees in psychology or social work or other mental health disciplines didn't know about or only knew a little bit. And so it was clear that this is definitely a huge gap in training. And, you know, that says a lot about how active our disciplines are in really trying to um, eradicate racism within the discipline. Right. So I teach for undergrads the psychology of sex and gender, and I do a presentation on, you know, at least the DSM history around sexuality and gender. And people in my class are shocked at how, how recent these things are and how slowly the field of psychology moves in terms of these things. And I really think looking at history really helps us understand the moment that we're in, particularly in the professional world of psychology, where we as a field, our students, our trainees, uh, our early career researchers are somewhat diverse, at least gender-wise, <laughs> not as much racially and ethnically, but our leadership is still primarily, you know, um, what is it, um, pale, male, and stale, you know, old white guys. <laughs> Things move very slowly uh, with people who, when you have a career that spans 40 years, the people at the top did their training 40 years ago. And so I think it's really fascinating the looking at the history. And it's not just the 1800s history that's deeply entrenched in racial bias, you know? Even the way that diagnoses are applied today, the conceptualizations around schizophrenia during the civil rights movement, it's very upsetting. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to work that points this out. Do you have um, a scholarship on the, the more modern ways that nosology or, or psychiatric diagnosis is inherently racialized by our field? Well, I did a, a little bit of work on this as a graduate student. Um, I had a paper published in Journal of Abnormal Psychology, which looked at the diagnosis of paranoid personality disorder um, and racial differences in that diagnosis. So this was part of a larger study led by Tom Oltmans, who's at Washington University in St. Louis, which is where I did my graduate training. And it's a longitudinal study of older adults in the St. Louis area. The sample's predominantly black and white, just based on the demographics of St. Louis. The study focused on, originally its focus was on personality disorders and how they change later in life. 
And what we found in the sample um, is about almost 2,000 people. What we found in the sample is that the only place where we saw consistent racial differences or disparities in personality disorder diagnoses was in paranoid personality disorder. And, you know, that has a lot of overlaps with things like schizophrenia, because people can be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And so in writing that paper, I did, you know, research looking at sort of the history of racial disparities and paranoia and paranoia and um, psychotic disorders and found that there was um, a lot showing that there seemed to be racial disparities in the diagnosis of schizophrenia and specifically that Black individuals were more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia whereas a white individual with similar symptoms was more likely to be diagnosed with um, depression or bipolar disorder. And, you know, that has very serious implications for the types of medication people are put on, for their prognosis, for whether or not they're offered, um, you know, individual therapy or whether that's seen as something that's going to be helpful, hospitalization, et cetera. And so it, it certainly has a huge impact on downstream disparities that we see as a result of this diagnosis. What we found in this particular sample was that experiences of trauma in childhood and socioeconomic status explained these racial differences in paranoid personality disorder. We didn't have data on discrimination at the time, but I imagine that discrimination would have played a similar role. And so we see that it's really these, you know, there's nothing inherent about being Black that leads to these issues. The reason why race is associated with disparities in paranoid personality disorder and a lot of other things is because of the environments that Black people are more likely to be in. For example, experience being, you know, more exposed to certain traumas or being living in poverty or um, having lower access to education and healthcare resources. And the reason why Black people are more likely to be in environments like that than whites is because of racism and because of systemic racism and because of the ways that racist housing policies like redlining, you know, led to um, essentially eventually led to these very segregated communities where poverty was sort of concentrated in particular areas that were by design primarily Black, you know, or Hispanic or uh, other identities of color. And so it's because of this systemic racism in all these different areas, education, housing, healthcare, et cetera, that leads to the concentration of poverty and leads to greater exposure to things like crime and violence. And, you know, and, and so, and that is what leads to these differences in mental um, illnesses. And then on top of that, you have bias in diagnosis. So not only do you have people exhibiting, you know, you may see sort of certain mental disorders more frequently in certain populations, but then you also have biases and diagnoses. So that's something that look, could potentially be considered something like depression, starts to be seen as something like psychosis, particularly because we tend to see higher levels of quote-unquote paranoia among Black Americans. And a lot of that paranoia occurs because Black Americans are living in a hostile world where the dominant culture is you know, one that constantly degrades and holds down Black people. And so that paranoia in a lot of ways is very adaptive. It helps people be able to navigate the world in a way that allows them to protect themselves and survive. But because uh, I, I think the numbers are something like there's, uh, I can't even remember the exact numbers, but, but I know for Black psychologists, there's about 
something like two to four percent of psychologists are black. It's such a small number of psychologists and mental health professionals in general who are people of color. Plus, there's not great sort of consistently implemented cultural competence training um, in assessment or diagnosis or treatment. So what you have is you have a field that's predominantly white um, that comes from that perspective that isn't necessarily well-trained in how to understand how culture and race and ethnicity and identity impact symptom presentation. And then you have people giving diagnoses that then end up being in some ways biased because there's a lack of an understanding of how to understand what, what this paranoia means, understanding where it's coming from, understanding that there are adaptive uses of it, and that it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is psychotic or delusional. It may mean that this person is actually existing in a world where they have to constantly be on guard. And so I think that that contributes to some of the issues with diagnosis. Um, and I think you see similar things for women in terms of some diagnoses that tend to be potentially overdiagnosed among women because of sort of the cultural expectations we have for how people should behave and a lack of understanding that different experiences shape symptom presentation in different ways. Exactly. And um one of the things, so my, my program is really neuropsych focused, and one of the things that's been really frustrating for me as a student in learning about prevalence rates are the disparities for things that we think of as organic, like uh, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's dementia, and the disparities socioeconomically and racially, there's a part of me that's like, why are we psychologists if we know these numbers? Like, why are we not all activists? Because we know that people are, are dying of racism, you know? We know these disorders, if we could fix the socioeconomic landscape, if we could fix this discriminatory landscape in the U.S., we could prevent more disease potentially than doing research in some ways. You know, we have the answer. We're just unwilling to implement it because it's not intrapsychic. It's not a medication. You know, there's not a, a market-driven reason to do so. And I, I find myself being a very annoying student um, <laughs> because, like, yes, all that's true. I still have to learn the material. But um, <laughs> I just really get stuck frequently. Like, why are we looking at everything intrapsychically? Why are we looking at things from a one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy perspective as psychologists? Because as researchers, we know prevention is potentially more useful than treatment. And prevention is beyond the intrapsychic. It is social. And, and that's just something I complain about a lot <laughs> as a psychology student. <laughs> I mean, I think it's great that you're complaining about it. I mean, I think that it is, I think you're absolutely right in that it's a huge problem. You know, I think one thing that happened in the field of, well, I have lots of thoughts about, about what you just said, but I think one thing that sticks out is, you know, one thing that happened with the field of clinical psychology in particular is that there was this move towards sort of making psychology more of a hard science. And there was a desire for psychology to become more of a legitimate kind of STEM field. And so there's really been a huge emphasis on neuroscience uh, and sort of the 
overlap of psychology and neuroscience, psychology and genetics, and these kinds of sciences. And I think that it's great. And I think that it can tell us a lot. But unfortunately, I think part of what may have happened, um, and this is just my opinion, but that that move toward the hard scientists, sciences sort of took us away from being more sort of connected and overlapping with more social sciences like sociology and uh, social epidemiology and things like that, uh, even public health. I'm not sure clinical psychology ever really had that great of a grasp on social determinants of health, but we certainly moved even further away from that and moving towards the hard sciences. And so in psychology, we really, in, in clinical psychology in particular, there's really much less emphasis on social determinants of health and how they impact the individual than there is on internal biological neuropsychological neuroscience and how that impacts the individual. So that's part of it. And, you know, another part of that is that even in disciplines that do talk a lot about social determinants of health, racism actually is often kind of excluded from those conversations. And I think that's really unfortunate because racism is really, I think, the cause for a lot of those social determinants of health um, and disparities in those social determinants of health. And so, you know, we really do need to recalibrate and start to think about how can we integrate an understanding of social factors such as racism, sexism, et cetera, and how those impact the individual and how we as psychologists can understand those social dynamics from a psychological perspective and understand how to change them. Because the psychologists, like we're all about behavior change. That's what psychology is about. So our expertise is in getting people to change behaviors and getting organizations to change behaviors. Um, and so we have the expertise and now we need, I think we really need to apply it to start to try and um, make some changes as far as, um, you know, racism in our society and how, you know, how much of a barrier it is to health equity. I have a question about that uh, organizational change. We've talked a little bit on this podcast in previous episodes about um, the EPA kind of reckoning with psychologists' role in torture of U.S. detainees. And I was wondering if there are any moves in the APA or any other broad institutions about addressing racism or systemic racism even within psychology, because you're kind of talking about, you know, how these two problems amplify each other, that there's like racism in society. And then if a black person goes to a doctor or a psychologist, they might be faced with racism from that, that own doctor. Is there anything being done at the institutional level to kind of at least one side or the other try to address that? Yeah. So in the American Psychological Association, um, and I have to say, I'm not necessarily privy to all the goings on, but they've had a few town halls where they had past and present leaders of the organization talk about, you know, things like racism within psychology and how can we address this? Um, how can we increase representation of diverse groups? And, you know, APA actually does a pretty good job of having um, good representation at, at, at the leadership level. The current president is not um, a person of color, I believe, but the last like two or three have been women of color and the CEO is a black man. So they've done pretty good with leadership in terms of having representation, but in general, like I said, the field of psychology is very, very white. They are putting together a 
working group or task force that's going to really focus on racism and just understanding how psychologists can contribute to eradicating racism. I'm always a little suspicious of task forces because I think to a certain extent we really know what to do or we know what we can do and it's about executing that rather than coming up with more ideas. But, you know, I, I certainly have seen some moves within the American Psychological Association or the APA that suggest that there is at least some effort being made to um, address these things, you know, and, and I've seen that in other, area, in other um, areas as well, you know, and I just think time will tell what happens with those initiatives. Because I think it's easy to put those things together. I think it's easy to make it, try to make one look like we're doing something about this, but at the end of the day, um, it's easy not to follow through. So I think it's just gonna take time for us to see what really comes out of these things. I was wondering also, do you think that psychologist training is kind of working towards, you mentioned that some students don't receive enough cross-cultural training or that people don't have enough cross-cultural competency, um, which, you know, I'm sure is a balance because there's so much training that, that does get done for psychologists. But um, I'm curious if you can kind of say more about what that ends up looking like or um, the flip side of uh, training psychologists of color? It really varies depending on the program. I'm really only intimately familiar with the program that I attended, which was at Washington University in St. Louis. And even that program has changed over time. When I was in graduate school, um, there was really no uh, sort of specific course or training that focused on cross-cultural responsiveness or competency. It was sort of embedded in other classes. You know, so it's not like the topic never came up. We did talk about it, but there was not a sort of concerted effort to really um, provide training in that area. There were few to no supervisors of color in the program. I don't know if that's changed or not. And again, you know, in order to accrue hours as a psychologist, you have to be supervised by a psychologist. So if only two to 5% of psychologists are people of color, the likelihood of being able to be supervised by a psychologist of color are very low um, in any given program. So that was definitely something I experienced. You know, I really pushed for more emphasis on race, ethnicity, culture, and, and training in those areas. And so um, they did put together sort of an independent study course right when I was leaving the program. So I don't know if that's been kept up. They certainly hired um, a few more faculty of color after I left, which was great. Certainly, I think that they, that, that particular program was trying to make some, um, some effort towards improving training when it comes to um, culture, race, and ethnicity. I think, again, it depends on the program. I think social work in general does a better job than clinical psychology. Counseling psychology does a better job than clinical psychology. Um, I think there's just a bigger emphasis on social factors in those disciplines. Like I said, clinical psychology has moved a lot more towards mechanistic neuroscience, genetics, et cetera, biology. Um, and so I think that that's part of, of what's going on. There's so many things that need to happen. But I'll just say broadly, more emphasis on recruiting students of color into psychology. And so the way people get into psychology programs, like graduate programs, oftentimes uh, 
faculty draw on like their networks, their um, professional networks, and sort of find students that way, particularly for like postdocs and stuff like that, but also for um, graduate school. Or, you know, they get it, they see a recommendation from somebody that they know and they sort of trust that. And so they're like, oh, this student sounds like they're good. And so I think that because we're drawing on all these existing networks, we tend to get the same people same kinds of people in our programs. And so I think expanding those networks and rethinking what those networks look like, rethinking how we recruit, where we recruit from, thinking how we define readiness for graduate school and understand that there's different kinds of readiness and that people can be trained on different things. So you can have people coming in with expertise in, you know, interacting with their community and engaging with the community and community service and community outreach. And that might be a wonderful area of expertise. And then you train in all the other stuff, right? I mean, and this requires really a paradigm shift in a way, I think. Um, rethinking some of what we consider to be readiness for graduate training and also rethinking how we find people and how we recruit people. And then rethinking how we train people and understanding like when people go out into the world to actually treat people, to actually interact with people, who are they interacting with? And how do we make sure that they're ready to interact with those people? And understanding also that the research, you know, there's a, a big emphasis on uh, evidence-based treatment. We have to recognize that, you know, these evidence-based C's are really largely supported by research with predominantly white samples. And we tend to see a lot less participation in research by people of color as well. And so we need to really understand that, you know, even if something is evidence-based or empirically supported does not mean that it's going to be one size fits all. You know, that's another reason why I wrote that thread about the race, you know, racism in the history of psychology and psychiatry it was also to help people understand why black people and people of color may not be interested in participating in the mental health system. That's a really important thing for us to understand because then we can start to understand like what do we need to communicate to people to help them feel like we are actually here to help them? What does that need to look like? Right? And the more that we can improve our training programs to really address racism as a social determinant of mental health and the importance of culturally responsive therapy, the more, you know, students of color we will attract to our programs. So that's a really important point as well, that it's not just that we're not accepting people of color into our programs. We're not attracting people of color into our programs because they come, they look around and all the faculty, you know, they, or they look at the website and faculty are not very diverse and the student body is not very diverse. And what classes do they offer? They don't really offer anything that addresses these social factors. And so then people sort of look at that and they're like, oh, I'm going to go into a different field. There's multiple levels of things that we need to change. And like I said, it's going to take a paradigm shift. And we can't put all of the burden on psychologists of color to do the work. Because at the end of the day, racism was created by white people. And so the only people who can really dismantle it are white people. We need to be able to have sort of a coalition of people from all different levels of, and all different types of programs at all different levels of their career from early career to, you know, senior level career, um, all different races, ethnicities, backgrounds. I mean, we really need to come together as a field and really, really think about critically, think about our field critically and think about what we need to do to really make change on a systemic level because it's really a systemic problem.
You said so much and there's, I don't know, yeah. I wish that you could like make an audio recording of vigorous nodding. <laughs> yes, I, I agree 100% with everything you said so far. You mentioned, again, kind of bringing it back to the, the thread that kind of brought us to your work, the idea that somehow people of color just need to trust us versus us reflecting on, well, how do we earn back that trust that we betrayed that caused this schism or this lack of trust or this disconnect. Even I think in the way that it's framed frequently is like, how do we make them do it? You know, <laughs> like this very white centered, like I, the psychologist need to force this person of color to understand that I have their best interest at heart. Sometimes I, it just feels like that's how the conversation is going. And I, I, you know, it's hard to come from that kind of conversation and move it to something that is healing for people as a community. And it's interesting because I think this kind of reflects on the fact that, again, our field is very intrapsychically focused and, and increasingly medicalized. And we don't get a lot of, I think that this falls under the umbrella of like hidden curriculum stuff in terms of what is valued in academia and what skills, like alternate skills may come from communities that are underrepresented in academia or communities that have been marginalized out of academia by white people and by wealthy people or by wealthy white people. And just this idea that there's a certain, I want to use the term agreeableness, but I feel like that's a little psych jargony, but there's kind of just a certain um, mile and nod go along to get along kind of feeling that I've mentioned I'm a difficult student and I've made some waves in my program for really questioning certain things that, that we're supposed to take on face value, which I think is what makes me a good researcher because I'm like, wait, what about this thing? <laughs> yeah, good for you. But, well, thank you. Um, I'm not saying that for praise, but what I'm realizing is there's a lot of fear amongst other students in asking questions like that. So it's not that other trainees aren't thinking those questions, but there's a lot of difficulty in having those conversations academically and having them not end up feeling personal to, you know, the people we rely on for our recommendation letters. Absolutely. First of all, I really love what you say about we need to gain back trust from communities of color and other marginalized communities. I think the onus is on us. So we really need to work on that. I fully agree with that. And I love the way you put it. And we expect for people, well, our treatments work. So if we just, if we just get people to understand that, then they'll come to treatment. But the question really is like, do they work? Do they really work for everyone? Because we know that our evidence-based treatments work for about maybe 60% of people who engage in research studies. Number one, people have to actually engage in a research study, but you know, there's 40% of people that ultimately these treatments don't really work for. And, and there tends to be this attitude of, well, they just, you know, maybe they didn't do it right or they didn't engage enough or whatever. And again, we have to look at our role because that's the only thing we can really control. We have to figure out how we can make these treatments more effective and more um, relevant for um, our patients. But beyond that, one thing that happened recently, um, so I'm on this listserv of psychologists who are clinical scientists. And recently, um, a group of people put together sort of a, a list or a database of research done by 
Black, Indigenous, and people of color, scholar, and scholars of color, and sort of spread this around the listserv. And there was some pushback to it. And the pushback was sort of around the idea of like, you know, we're getting too political. And there was a lot of pushback to the pushback, which was wonderful. But there was a lot of sort of fear on the part of uh, scholars of color and early career researchers. And most scholars of color are early career because the field is getting more diverse as time goes on um, about sort of responding and expressing why those comments were racist, although nobody actually said that, but why those comments were racist and why they were sort of making assumptions about the work of scholars of color that was very much assuming that, you know, we need to sort of give this work more scrutiny. It's this idea that somehow equality and equity is political. And then that somehow everything else is not political. Somehow trying to move towards a science, clinical psychology as a scientific discipline, medicalizing clinical psychology, that somehow those aren't political endeavors. But if we add race into the mix, that now it's political. And this assumption that somehow science is devoid of politics, that we're not all individual human beings doing science, who all have our own biases, our own political leanings, our own agendas. And yes, we try very hard to keep our agendas out of our science and for science to be objective. But at the end of the day, you know, again, we're human beings. And so it's just, it's never going to be fully objective. And if we look at the field of clinical psychology, we have predominantly white samples. We have a lot of samples that are predominantly white undergraduates. We don't do a good job of having diverse uh, samples. And our field is very glaringly non-diverse. So to suggest that somehow politics and biases has nothing to do with our work is, is, is ridiculous. And, you know, in order for us to be able to uh, achieve some kind of equity within our field, like we have to actively be anti-racist, which is an active term, which means we have to actually go out of our way to change the way we've been doing things in order to achieve equity. So anyway, you know, a lot of what came up was just sort of the fear of more early career people and people of color, you know, speaking up against this. And at one point there was like, there were anonymous emails being sent because people were afraid of how this might impact their career, their ability to get a job um, and things like that. And so that is a very, very real concern. And it's definitely gets in the way of being able to make change. And so I do think it's crucial, crucial, crucial for psychologists who are in later in their careers, who have um, you know tenure, who have job security, to really support Black and Indigenous and um, other scholars of color in being able to make a change in the field. Um, and there certainly are people like that in the field, and we need more. So you know that's important. And and again, it can't be all on the backs of people of color and young people because we have things that we have to take care of and we have to, you know, continue our careers as well. So we need help and we need support. And I mean, one th other thing I'll say about that is I love this quote from Audre Lorde. So it's from Litany for Survival. And what she says at the end, she says, um, when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. And it's just this idea that 
we're always so afraid to speak up because we're worried that it will threaten our survival in some way or another, which is a very valid and legitimate worry. If we don't speak up, though, what does that mean for us and for our people? When she says we were not meant to survive, to me, that means as people of color, as Black people, anything that we're doing now is meaningful because we weren't really meant to be here. So even the, all the little baby steps, all the you know, side conversations, offline conversations we have with one another, all of the you know, ways that we choose the research that we put out, the way that we choose to use our platform, all of it makes a huge difference, even if it feels small. And I think that we need to find the ways that we can speak up while still surviving. And for us to support each other so that if something does happen to one of us, there's a, a safety net there. You know, um, you know, I think for us clinical psychologists, in some ways, it might be a little bit easier for us to speak up because we, first of all, we know how to communicate very effectively. And I think also we know how to persuade. And I think also, you know, if you're in academia and you're doing research and you speak up and for some reason that affects your career in academia, I mean, maybe you're better off practicing in the community and helping people, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think that there, um, there's, there's a huge role for psychology and psychologists in changing the field of psychology, but also just changing attitudes and behaviors in general in the broader population. And for us to form a better understanding of racism at multiple levels, the individual level, systemic level, institutional level, um, for us to really understand and explicate how all of those levels of analysis influence um, mental health and, and how we can intervene at all of those different levels. I wonder so much about, because, you know, um, even in my short time in the world of academic psychology, I've really seen the pushback that you described by senior people or senior psychologists around the idea of racializing the field because white is not racial, <laughs> but the idea of diversifying the field becoming a racialization or a politicization, which is like one of the pet peeves of this particular podcast is the conflation between the terms political and partisan in some ways, because everything is political. We live in a society. But anyway, um, you know, seeing some of this pushback, I really, it's fascinating to me because I think we have this cultural narrative of the way cultural shifts happen. And it's like, we were all asleep and then one day we all woke up. And it's really fascinating to me to kind of be in the, the process of these uprisings that are informing the kinds of conversations we're having in academia in having had some of these uh, conversations before now, really coming up against people pushing back in ways that were really unexpected to me. And that's a function of my white privilege in a lot of ways, because I haven't been having these conversations in an ongoing way. But I think it's a, one of the hidden aspects of prejudice that people, or the way that systems recreate prejudice, uh, recreate discriminatory practices because somebody felt like not only the thought that this is a bad idea to talk about research from uh, the perspective of Black and Indigenous people of color who are doing the research, 
rather than seeing it as viewpoint diversity, seeing it as politicizing, and rather than enriching, seeing it as biasing in a certain way. Uh, not only somebody thought that, but somebody thought it was a good idea to tell everyone in their field that that was what they thought. Um, like, that's where I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I think part of it is that there's kind of this false equivalence that's made that, you know, okay, we all agree racism is bad, okay? It's bad for things not to be equal. The problem with that sort of blanket mindset and not nuancing it is that actually, in order for us to actually be able to create equitable systems, we need policies. And if you read How to Be an Anti-Racist, Dr. Kendi talks a lot about this. You know, you have to have anti-racist policies. And anti-racist policies, the way that he defines them, are that they're policies that lead to racial, you know, whatever group you're talking about, equity. And sometimes those anti-racist policies are going to look on their face like they're not treating people equally because they're not, because they have to not treat people equally in order to get people to a place of equity. You know, so if you think about affirmative action as a classic example, the only way that you can increase access and diversity of, you know, college campuses, for example, or workplaces is to treat um, people who are underrepresented differently than you treat people who are overrepresented. That's the only way you can get there. And so I think that there's this big concern with, oh, well, you know, we can't treat people differently. We have to treat everybody the same, but we can't all of a sudden start treating everybody the same when everybody's been treated differently for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I think that there's a, a certain amount of nuance that is necessary for us to really start to be able to have these conversations rather than these, we have a lot of these sort of unspoken rules about what we can and can't talk about and how we can and can't talk about things. Um, and so, and, and we as people who believe in equity and equality get wrapped up into that as well. You know, we get caught up in that as, also. We try to say, no, well, it is equal. Well, no, you know, but it really isn't. And it, and it shouldn't be because it can't be. So that's the thing that really pops into my mind when, um, when you're talking about some of these expectations of, you know, non-politicalness and, you know, everybody's the same and we shouldn't treat people differently because the fact of the matter is that we do need to treat people differently. And once racism is eradicated, we can start treating everyone the same. I think that's a fantastic note to end on, considering the time. <laughs> no problem. I'm glad we got to talk about these kind of like broader system systems level issues. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Do you have anything that you want to add or any way, any work that you want people to look at online? Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Juliet. Um, it's J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E-M. And I wish I had something that I was like promoting, but I really don't at this point besides my Twitter. <laughs> And um, well, if you do, it'll be on Twitter. Yeah, so. there you go. Good. I think one of the other things that I always like to say is for people who want to understand more about racism and how it affects people and understanding systemic racism and how it has impacted people over time, you know, to read black authors, you know, I think a lot of people recommend like white fragility and stuff like that, which I think is fine. And I think that that's a good place to start. But I think at the end of the day, you're going to learn, you're going to get a, a more instructive and cogent analysis of racism and its impact on people of color by reading writers of color. So people I always recommend are like Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow. I mean, wonderful. Uh, you know, reading James Baldwin, reading Ijoma Lowe. 
So you want to talk about race, reading how to be an anti-racist, Ibram X. Kendi. Those are just a few places to start, but those are really good places to start to really get like a cogent analysis of racism and systemic racism and how it has impacted people over time and still does today. I think it's really important to understand those dynamics. They're complicated. It's not simple. And so you can't just understand it just by being in the world. You you know, even for me as a Black woman, reading and listening to scholars who've thought about this day in, day out from sort of a broader systems political level really helps me to better understand how to help my patients as well. So that's what I would recommend. Thank you so much. Follow our podcast on Twitter at FemCoffeePod and um, have a great day. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.